by narrative writers is dialogue. So when the author puts words in the uh, character's mouths, that becomes important to your uh, reading of the story and coming to the point of that the author's trying to make. So dialogue is the speech that takes place between the characters in the narrative. Now here's just some things about dialogue. The author does not record everything that was said, only that which makes his point. In other words, if you remember back to my example that I used this morning on Genesis, in Genesis when uh, uh, Joseph was with Potiphar's wife, and she said, come lie with me or lie with me. You know that she didn't just walk up to him and say, let's go to bed. She went up to him and, and gave some flowery speech. And every day she told him how hot he was. And uh, today you look especially fine, Joseph. And oh boy, you got me any time, you know, come on. Whatever she told him, the speech was boiled down to her one singular intent. That's this. The author does not record everything that was said but only that which makes his point. So, he's putting words in the mouths of the characters that they actually said, by the way. They actually said them. He's not making it up. But he's only telling you what he wants you to know in order to get you to the point of the story. So, that's what that is about. Um, the author is selective so that the speech of the character supports the point the author was making. Now here's the way it works, and here I'm going to show you this here in a minute, but the author narrates the story from the third-person perspective. Now if, for those of you who don't know what that means, what that means is the author is writing a story about somebody else. And so if I were writing a story about you, I would say the high, school, uh, the high schoolers at... Uh, uh, Nebraska Christian, and I'd, be, and I'd be writing about you from someone outside of you. That's a third-person perspective. So I'm writing this story about you. But then what he does is he tells the story of, about other people, and then he switches to a first-person perspective, and the characters reveal their own character and heart by having them speak for themselves. So and what he does is he's writing about someone else and then he immediately switches and puts words in the characters' mouths and it's coming from themselves. So it jumps to a first person's perspective as in, but I said this. So if I were writing a third person story about you, I would be talking about the high schoolers at Nebraska Christian and then John said this. And I've jumped from me telling the story to John's words explaining his own character and heart by what he says. Because out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the words that come from the mouth of the character is, is speaking of the character from the first person perspective. So that change is intentional and he's actually using that as a tool to guide you where he wants you to go. He wants you to know what the character is doing. So, 
Potiphar's wife has the singular thing. When you get to Joseph, however, you know what motivates Joseph's life. It's being honorable before men and God. And I'm that way publicly and I'm that way privately. I'm honorable in all of my relationships. And all of that gets communicated right from Joseph. And we know what Joseph was motivated by. That's an important tool the author uses. Okay, I'm going to give you some examples of this. And uh, so, um, very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. You know the story, right? And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Now notice what happened. He's telling the story from a third-person perspective about the ladies. I think it's Mary and Salome and uh, whatever, who are, another other Mary, Mary Magdalene. They were on their way to, to embalm the body of Jesus and spice him up. And as they're, moving, as they're moving towards this tomb, he's telling it about them. And then while they're on their way, he says, and they were saying this. And he put this in their mouth. So one of their big concerns, one of their big concerns as they're going to the tomb is, who's going to roll the stone away? And they, they, they said to each other. Uh, so it was a, not a singular. It was, it was a discussion that they were having. Who, who's going to roll the stone away? Who's going to roll the stone away? How are we going to move the stone why are we doing this if we, if we can't move the stone? It was just, it was there. It was, because the author wants you to ask the question, who rolled the stone away? Because we know the answer to that question. When they got there, the stone was rolled away. The guards were in shock. It didn't matter how many guards were put to guard the tomb. It didn't matter how big the stone was. It didn't matter how many kings stamped their seal on it. None of that matters. Who rolled the stone away? God. It's the question of the text. It's in fact the plot. They put it in dialogue form. They're telling the story first person, jump, uh, third person, they jump into first person and wham you with the whole point. This happens all the time in Scripture. You have to watch when it happens. So here's an example of different types of places different types of things to notice when you're looking at dialogue. The first speech in a narrative needs to be given special attention. Oftentimes, the first speech reveals the theme and the plot. So the first person to speak has a place of priority that the author wants you to pay special attention to. It's the conversation that's going to flow from there. So the first person to speak is really critical. That's all this is saying. And here's an example of that. I've used it before. I'm going to show it to you again. This is the story of Ruth. And so there, Elimelech takes his family down to Moab. The, all the men die. Uh, Naomi hears that there's a, a famine is over in Israel, so she's going to leave Moab and go back to Israel to search for provision. Now all that's told in the third person. And then after the third person uh, story is being told, uh, has been told, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, now this is coming from her mouth, it's coming from Naomi's heart, it's coming from Naomi's thinking, and it's not coming from God. 
This is Naomi talking, and here's what she says. Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. That now becomes the crux of the book of Ruth. Out of Naomi's mouth, a person in covenant relationship with the living God, an Israelite, talking to her two daughters-in-laws, saying, you go back home. I hope, I hope God deals kindly with you there. But I'm going home, and you're better off if you stay here. Out of a person in a covenant relationship with God, she's telling them to go back to your pagan lifestyle. You've got a better chance of happiness there than coming with me to Israel. And God goes, what? I will prove to you differently. I will show you. And the whole book of Ruth is how, uh, is how God showed Naomi that that whole concept is wrong. He's the God who provides. He's the God who cares. He cares for downtrodden. And the, that first dialogue, put in first person, tells you Naomi was not thinking correctly. Look what God did to one of his own who wasn't even thinking correctly. How, how, how big is that God, huh? Here's a lady who's mistaken. She's off in la-la land. And God goes, my love endures forever. <laughs> I'm going to get you back. Watch me. And he pulls her back home. Blesses her beyond belief. And she's sitting at the end going, what a great God I have. That's not her mouth in the beginning. But at the end of the book, Naomi's going, man, what a God of blessing. That's the first story. It's, it's, a, it's the first speech in the dialogue. This is the first speech in, in the story of Elijah. Okay? So there's Elijah and Elisha. And if you know First and Second Kings, Elijah and Elisha have the same ministry spanning two different prophets. But it's the identical ministry from one to the other. And uh, you keep them separated by the fact of the alphabetical order. So Elijah alphabetically comes before Elisha. So in your mind, you go, okay, that's Elijah comes first, Elisha comes second. That's just the easy way to keep them sorted. But we're introduced to Elijah in this verse right here. We don't know Elijah before this. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. So what you have here is uh, the first words out of Elijah's mouth. This is what he says. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, there will be neither dew nor rain in all of Israel until I tell you. So you know the drought comes for three years and all that, and the story of Elijah comes on. But here's the key thing. From the story, uh, if, you, if you read the background, you would have Ahab on the throne. And Ahab is an idol worshiper, and he brought Baal worship into Israel. 
And he was, in fact, the worst king of Israel up until this point. So he was the worst king of Israel, the northern nation, um, uh, up, until, up until this whole time. No one was worse than him. So Jeroboam was terrible, but what made Ahab worse is because Ahab actually brought idolatry into Israel in the, in the temple and so forth and so on. He brought in Baal worship. And why they worshipped Baal, or why they thought to worship Baal, was because they thought he was the fertility god. The uh, Asherah gods were the female fertility gods. Uh, Baal were the male fertility gods. And so they said, if we worship fertility gods, everything prospers. Our cows have calves, our sheep have lambs, our, our pigs have piglets, and we're wealthy. So the God of prosperity produces offspring and prosperity for everything. So this grain of corn produces a head of corn and uh, credit to Baal. So the whole nation of Israel is being moved to worship a Baal God who's being credited with fertility. But one of the needs of fertility... And one of the reasons for famine is water. And if there's no water, there's no crops and everything dies. And, a and Elijah's ministry shows up in Israel at this time of Baal worship. And the question of his ministry and Elisha's ministry resonates as this. As the Lord of God of Israel lives. And the question of his whole ministry is, who's the living God? And it's right there in his first words, first speech of his whole ministry, as the Lord of God of Israel lives. Now, if Baal is a living God, then he can bring rain in spite of what the living God says. But if the living God is the living God and Baal is not the living God, then there will be no rain till I say it. That's the issue. It's the crux of his whole ministry. And so then God takes him and feeds him by the river, by the creek, and, and takes him to Zarephath and to the widow and feeds him there and provides for him because our God is the living God and he can provide and he's decided not to provide to his people who are worshiping a different God and crediting that different God with fertility. And the whole ministry of Elijah is built on this one fact. Whose God is the living God? So then they come up to Mount Carmel. Remember the big battle? And, and you, you, you guys, all 450 of you, you, you call out to Baal, and if he responds with fire, then we'll all worship him because we know he's a God who hears. Because hearing is a sign of life. And, and we know he's a God who responds because acting is a sign of life. But if he doesn't hear and he doesn't respond, you know he's not alive. And then I'll call on my God. And if he hears and acts, you'll know he's alive. And you know the story. And his whole ministry begins on this first dialogue speech. And you're supposed to read his whole ministry as well as Elisha's whole ministry around this one phrase, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives. Because everything in their ministries is trying to tell us our God is the living God. And he sees 
and hears and acts and does and responds and gives prosperity and fertility and so forth and so on. There's one God that does that, and it's not Baal, it is the living God. Now, when you read about idols in the Psalms and in the book of Isaiah, very clearly that becomes the issue that those prophets begin to argue against idols. And what they say is they have eyes, but they can't see. And they have ears, but they can't hear. And they have hands, but they can't do anything. So they're, they're, they're just figments of stone or gold or wood, but they're not living. Because someone carved the eye into that figure, but the eye doesn't see. Because seeing is a sign of life. Hearing is a sign of life. Acting is a sign of life. All of that is wrapped up in the first statement of Elijah's out of his mouth in the whole long story of his ministry. My God lives. My God lives. That's Elijah. It's all over. It's all over their ministries. So we are talking about dialogue, and we're talking about the, we just finished the first person to speak in any story. So the first person that speaks always kind of sets the stage for the dialogue going forward, and you want to pay particular attention there and then see how that dialogue gets developed because that dialogue is the critical one, the first one to talk, all right? There's a second thing about dialogue you want to notice, and that is that dialogue that contrasts itself. So contrastive dialogue. One person says this, the other person says that, and they're contrary one to the other. Anytime they're contrary one to the other, it's a big deal. All right? I'm going to give you an example of that as well, but let's also remember uh, Joseph and Potiphar's wife. So there's this huge contrast on how they talk about sex. She's going, ah, it's just physical and I'm passionate. And he's going, it's not just physical, and I control my passions for a much higher purpose. And there's a contrastive view that comes out of their speech that tells you Joseph is a righteous guy and, and, and doesn't respond just to his passions. He's not led by his passions. He has a much higher purpose in life and much bigger calling than just gratification of desires. And as you get into the New Testament teachings, that lesson becomes very, very clear. Well, it's even in the old, Psalm 1, don't walk in the way of sinners, that. But all throughout the New Testament, we're getting instructions, control your desires. Don't, the goal of life is not to chase your desires. It comes out in that contrastive speech. There's other contrasting speech and this is a this is just a uh, my favorite example it, it I just love this example I, I preach a sermon on this example that's how cool this is <clears throat> when Jesus had finished saying all these things he said to his disciples so this is this is towards the end of the upper room discourse and they've gone out and so forth and so on and this is one of the one of the big things at the end when Jesus had fi had finished saying all these things 
He said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. So get the setting for this. The picture is that Jesus is with his disciples. They've had their uh, uh, Passover dinner. They're, they're moving out now to the Garden of Gethsemane and so forth and so on. And uh, Jesus, well, it's, that's not true. The, he's a, the, that happens the night before. This is a different part of that setting. But he's, what he's saying is, it's two days away. So it's two days before the crucifixion, whatever they were doing on that day. Two days before the crucifixion, Jesus said, the Passover is two days away, and as you know, the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. That's the day. I've been telling you, and I've been telling you, and I've been telling you, and now this is the day, Passover. All right, so then, that's Matthew 26, 1 and 2. Now watch what happens. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas. So now you have another meeting. Only this is with chief priests, elders of the people, and Caiaphas the high priest. So while this meeting is happening, there's this meeting happening. Look what's said at this meeting. And they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. First person narrative. But not during the feast, they said. For there may be a riot among the people. <laughs> first person narrative. And the first person to speak. All comes into play here. So we're telling a story. Jesus is meeting with his disciples. And here's what Jesus says. The Passover is two days away. Son of man's going to be crucified. While that meeting's going on, there's another meeting. These are different kind of leaders. First person narrative. But not in two days. We will do anything to get this guy except arrest him in two days. That dialogue sets up for you the whole interpretation of the, of the crucifixion and resurrection narratives of Jesus Christ. Who, who killed Jesus? Who killed Jesus? That's the question. That's the plot. We have two movements. One comes from the mouth of Jesus. First dialogue. Passover is two days away. I'm going to die on Passover. Second dialogue, first person narrative. We're going to get this guy, but we're not going to do it now. And you know the story. Which of these two paths actually happened? And who killed Jesus? Was it the Jews that killed Jesus? Was it, was it Caiaphas and the high priest and the, 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 the elders and the scribes? Were they the ones that killed Jesus? Because if they were the ones that killed Jesus, they really screwed up because they weren't intending to do it on that day. In fact, they were going to avoid that day at all costs. You know who killed Jesus on Passover? God killed Jesus on Passover because Jesus died as the Passover lamb. And the blood of the Passover lamb 
protects the people from judgment and death. And God was killing His Son as the Passover lamb on the day of Passover so that you would know that the Lamb of God was killed. Takes away the sin of the world. It's in dialogue form. Set up the contrast. And you have to say, I wonder if he's going to die on Passover. And why does he die on Passover? I wonder who killed him. If it wasn't those guys, who was it? The father put forth his son as the propitiation for our sins. Jesus died on Passover according to the will of the Father. And the Romans didn't put him there. And the Jews didn't put him there. But God put him there. Contrastive speech. Huge. Theologically full. Because Jesus is saying this and they're saying that. And one of them is right. Uh, powerful stuff. Contrastive speech is essential and um, um, pointed. Anytime you run into speech that's face-to-face -face like that, then you, you know that this is now going to be the issue that gets worked out. And then, uh, I'm not going to develop this because I developed this last time, but anytime repetition is used in dialogue form, it's important. And I showed you that last time with, with repetition. Oh, I was going to read to you a story. Remind me to read to you the story on repetition. I forgot that. It's really good. Anytime repetition is... Uh, no, I did that here, didn't I? Did I do Psalm 136 here? I thought I did. Repetition. Anytime repetition is used in dialogue, it's important. And I'm not going to develop that. Okay. So then the fourth characteristic that the author uses. So this is his technique. And uh, he uses the technique called a narrator. Now the best way to define a narrator is going back to your, your Christmas plays that you do at church. And you'll remember that sometimes you'll have all the little kids up here and they, you were probably in those Christmas plays and there'll be some acting. And then all of a sudden the lights go down here on the actors and the spotlight shines to someone over there reading, us, reading the Bible passage. And then he quits reading or she quits reading. And then the lights shine here and they do all this acting. And then these lights go down and, the, and that person reads some more of the Christmas story. That person's called the narrator. And what he's doing is explaining this action over here. So if little kids are acting out the Christmas story, you might not follow the point. And so you need a narrator read it for you so that you kind of get the hang of what's going on. Well, that's the same thing when the, when the author uses a narrator in the story. So this story is happening here, and then all of a sudden this light shuts off and the spotlight goes on a narrator who comments about something that's happening here that you need to know to understand it correctly. That's the narrator. When this story stops and you get a comment, now that comment sometimes is long, but sometimes it's just really short, but it's something you need to know. Okay, 
that narrator is the omniscient voice. When that happens, it's always God. And it's God telling the story from his point of view, guiding the reader to the correct perspective and response. So every time the story kind of gives you information that you didn't need in this story, but you need to interpret the story correctly, and so this action stops and they throw in this comment over here, that is directly from God. It's called the narrator. Okay? It happens a lot, far more than you can imagine, until you start to notice it. I'm going to give you some examples of that uh, to show you the narrator's voice. So this is uh, the first story. I've got to set it up before I give you the, the punchline. This is a story in 1 Kings. And uh, it's, I think, Ahab is still the king on the throne of Israel, and uh, Jehoshaphat is king on the throne of Judah. And the king of Israel wants to go fight against one of the other lands. I forget the name of it. doesn't matter. They want to go fight against another king. And uh, so he wants Jehoshaphat to go fight with him and bring the armies of Judah with the armies of Israel and go fight a third party. And the, uh, the king says, I'll go with you, uh, but let's talk to a prophet first. And so the king of Israel says, no problem. And he calls all his prophets of Baal, and they all tell him, oh yeah, go, you're going to win. And uh, Jehoshaphat, who's watching this go down, he's a righteous guy, says, well, let's, uh, uh, let's find someone who actually is a prophet of the living God. Let, let's not just listen to these prophets, let's find a prophet of God's. And so there's only one in Israel at the time, his name is Micaiah, and, and King Ahab says, well, okay, we'll call Micaiah, but you've got to know he never prophesies anything good about me. He just thinks I'm a bad guy and everything he says is bad. So they go get Micaiah and they, they warn him. They said, listen, all the other prophets are saying he's going to be victorious, and when you get there, you better say you're going to be victorious. And so they bring Micaiah before the kings and they ask him, are we going to win? And he goes, of course you're going to win, just go into battle. And, and the, the king Ahab goes, wait a minute, you, you know we want the truth, quit being uh, so, so spiteful that way. Tell us the truth. And he says, all right, you're going to go into battle and you're going to die in this battle. And Jehoshaphat isn't. And so they decide to go into the battle anyway. And they make this plan, it's the dumbest plan in the world for Jehoshaphat. They decide that they're going to go into the battle and King Ahab is going to dress like a common soldier and Jehoshaphat is going to go in dressed like a king. So the armies will mistake Jehoshaphat and try to kill him and Ahab will not die. And Jehoshaphat agrees to the plan. Jehoshaphat goes, oh, that sounds like a good idea. Then they'll just try to kill me. That's great. And, and you're reading, Jehoshaphat, you're an idiot. What? But it's not a story about Ahab and, and, and Jehoshaphat. Is Ahab going to die in this battle or not? Does it matter how he dresses? Does it matter how he goes into the battle? 
Because if he doesn't die in this battle, then God is no longer on the throne. Because God said he's going to die in the battle. It doesn't matter if Jehoshaphat goes in with a bullseye and says, shoot me. If Ahab doesn't die, God is no longer God. So they go into the battle. And this battle is raging. And then we read this verse right here. But someone drew his bow and hit the king of Israel between the sections of his armor. Notice how I read that and skipped the highlighted phrase. And you would have thought, reading that high, without the highlighted phrase, you would have said, someone saw him, took aim, and got him. But the story is telling you the motives of the archer's heart. You would never know this happened in the battle. There were people firing arrows all over the place. Everybody's shooting everybody. And there's archers shooting anybody that moves. And yet there's one guy who doesn't have a target. So he just takes his arrow and goes like this. And that arrow gets King Ahab between the sections of his armor. And it's the phrase that says, the motive of the archer was random, but the arrow was not. Because my God lives. And my living God can have this archer just snap back his bow, fling the arrow, turn around and not give two hoots. And my God can take that arrow and put it right into Ahab's body. And he dies. That phrase is telling you to interpret this story through God's perspective. And the only way you know the motive of the archer is in that phrase right there. That's God's omniscient voice. Every time you see that, that's God saying, let me tell you this story from the right perspective. Don't get the wrong perspective. This wasn't an archer killing him. This was me killing him. I killed Ahab. And don't ever think it was an archer. Because I said I would. And that's it. That's the narrative voice. It's God talking, telling you how to interpret that story. I'm going to uh, show you another one. This is uh, uh, Luke. And you're familiar with this. This is another story you're familiar with. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Isn't that a great question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now notice that this is a test. This isn't someone uh, who's saying, boy, I really want to know how to get to heaven. I really, I really want to know what it means to be a righteous person. It's someone who has the, 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 the motive in his heart to test Jesus and try to trap him in his own words. He's, he's, he's motivated with deceit, if you will. So, the story goes on. Well, what's written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? So Jesus is saying, well, what, what do you think the law says? And he answered, this is the lawyer, 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. Okay, so watch this dialogue, because this is critical to understanding this. What must I do to be saved? Well, what does God say? The lawyer's coming from the perspective of the law. And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus goes, yep, if you do that, you will live. And the lawyer could have easily said, yeah, I've done that. There was a rich guy that said, I've done that. The lawyer could have said, well, yeah, but that's impossible to keep. What do you do if you don't keep it? What if you don't, if you don't love God right? Well, he could have done, had a thousand different ways of answering Jesus. But he wanted to say, but I'm still right before God because I don't know who my neighbor is. He wanted to justify himself. And now you're looking into the heart of the questioner. The guy who came to test Jesus just revealed his heart. And it's revealed in this statement he wanted to justify himself. You want to know why? Because he knows he didn't love God or love people right. And he goes, yeah, but who's my neighbor? I don't even know who my neighbor is. How can I love him? And then Jesus talks about the good Samaritan. And he, the, the story of the good Samaritan is actually answering, who is my neighbor? And Jesus is going, anybody that you bump into is your neighbor. It's just every opportunity you have is an opportunity to be a neighbor. But without the statement that said, and he wanted to justify himself, we would have a different interpretation of that story. It would take us in a different direction. But the lawyer was trying to argue that he was okay, even though he didn't love the Lord rightly and love his neighbor of himself rightly. And he tried to weasel out of the condemnation. You know that that's what happens every time you use the law as the means of getting to heaven? So if you say to yourself, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you come back with an answer that's geared out of the Mosaic law. You will either have to say, I have failed to do that. Or you will have to make an excuse for yourself and say, but I tried really hard. And you will try to justify yourself. Because the Mosaic Law was never given to save you. The Mosaic Law was always given to make you aware of your sin and drive you to Jesus. The law was a schoolmaster to take you to Jesus. The law was in place until Christ. Because the law takes you to Christ. And the lawyer was saying, I just have to do the Mosaic Law. And then when confronted with the Mosaic law, he was guilty. But he didn't take that guilt to Christ. He took it to self-justification. That will happen every single time you use the Ten Commandments as the means of being right with God. Because the Ten Commandments do not make you right with God. In fact, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And if you want to be right with God, you go to Jesus. You don't go to the law. And so that narrative comment, he wanted to justify himself, 
exposes his heart to us in a way that now opens that story up so that we are able to say, oh, the law doesn't save us. We, we get guilty by the law, and we have to turn to Christ for salvation. It's just that type of a move there, and we know it based upon the, the, author, the, the justification that the lawyer was trying to do. There's another one. This is John 18, and this is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Judas now is coming up with all the people he's got to arrest Jesus. And this is the narrative comment. It says, Jesus... And if you skip that next phrase, it says, Jesus went out and asked them, who is it you want? That's how the story reads. But in the middle of that comes the narrator. The light shines on it so you get the right perspective of the story. And it says, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him. And you're let in on Jesus' thought process and on, on the heart of Jesus in that statement. You would not need that unless it were important to the story. But the narrator is telling you, this is what's going on in Jesus. So at that moment, Judas is coming with this band of people armed to arrest Jesus. Jesus, knowing everything that's going to happen to him. He knows he's going to get beaten. He knows he's going to have a crown of thorns thrown on his head. He knows he's going to get punched and, and pummeled by, by, by the palace guards. He knows he's going to be crucified. He knows he's going to have a miserable miserable next day. And he didn't run. He went out, knowing all that was going to happen. He went to them. Says, who, is, who, who do you want? Who are you here for? And they're going to go, Jesus of Nazareth, and he's going to say, that's me. That's me. And you get an understanding of the crucifixion that you wouldn't get if that wasn't there. Because now you have a willing Savior, and you have a willing sacrifice. And your Savior said, here I am, here I am. I come to do the will of the Father. Take me. You do not need that to follow the story. You just need that to get the right understanding of the story. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? And he did not shy away from the cross. But he took the cross upon himself for you. Now, who, who put Jesus on the cross, by the way? Not you. God. And Jesus gave himself up the whole movement of Christianity is what God is doing for you, not what you're doing for God. And when we confuse that, we go to the lawyer and we go, well, I've got to do this for God. I've got to do my best to keep the Ten Commandments. But if you understand the movement of Christianity, it's from God to us, not from us to God. And Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and said, here I am. Powerful, narrative voice. Every time you see a narrative voice, every time you see a narrative voice, and you have to pay attention to it because it's that subtle of a phrase. 
every time it's God saying, oh no, you need to know this. That narrative voice is huge. I think that's my last example. Oh no, oh, this is a great one. This is my last example. This is Luke 2.50. This is the story of when Jesus stayed behind in the temple. You remember that story? So he's 12 years old. They took him to Jerusalem because it's a feast, and this is one of the times when the families have to go to Jerusalem. So his righteous parents went to Jerusalem, and they took him when he was 12 years old. And then the feast is over. They get in. They travel for a day, and they realize Jesus is not there. So now they have to travel a full day's journey back and search for Jesus. And so on the third day, they find Jesus. And they find him in the temple. And it tells us that he was asking and answering questions with the scribes and the Pharisees in the temple. So the teachers. So there's these teachers in the temple, like we're in this temple and I'm teaching. And they're, 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 they're dialoguing with questions and answers. And they, Joseph and Mary finally find Jesus three days later. Can you imagine their panic? We just lost the Christ. <laughs> Not just my son. My virgin-born son. We just misplaced him. God's going to be mad about this one. There's extreme panic. This was a disastrous mistake. And they, they, they come to him and they, and, and they find him in the temple and Mary goes, Son, why have you treated me like this? And then we get this response from Jesus. <laughs> why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Now, can you hear the tone in a 12-year-old's boy, 12, boy's mouth? Why were you looking for me? Didn't you know I had to be here? You smart Alex, smart mouth, 12-year-old kid. Who do you think you are talking to your mother that way? That can't be Jesus, can it? That's not what Jesus would do. Jesus would never have responded that way to his mother. But this is what he said, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be here? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And then it says, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. That's a narrative voice telling us about Mary and Joseph having this conversation with Jesus. And they were having a conversation and Jesus responds, didn't you know I had to be here? And now we know Joseph and Mary were listening to what he said and had no clue what he was saying. And if you're reading that, you have to say, oh, this isn't a 12-year-old boy smart-mouthing. This is actually a statement explaining why Jesus stayed behind. And they didn't know what he said. I better understand why he said it. It's a narrative voice telling us what was going on in their minds that you would never know about, but as soon as you realize he was making a point, it triggers in you the sense that says, I better find out. And in this story, the only story in all the Bible of Jesus between the age of 2 and 30, 
is this one. The only one. Did he play soccer? Did he, did he play basketball or whatever sport they did? Was he a good shot? Whatever they did. Did he, did he know how to swim? Was he, was, was he a man's man? I don't know. The Bible says nothing about Jesus from age 2 to 30 except for this one story. Do you, you think it's important that of all of his life, between his birth and his public ministry, you get one story, and it's this one right here. Do you think you ought to know and try to understand what Jesus was saying? I would think you would want to know. And the emphasis comes when you read the narrative voice. They didn't understand. But you better. And God wants to teach you something about Jesus in this story that you're only going to get in this story. It's the only thing. It's the only thing we know about Jesus in those 28 years. And it's a hard saying. You better find out. Narrative voice guides us to that. It's, it's just powerful.